good morning. How are you guys doing today? Hey, let's just give our worship team one more big hand of applause for leading us in worship. Guys, that was powerful. Thank you guys so much. Well, my name is David, if, if you didn't already know that, and I'm the worship pastor here at uh, Southwinds. And it's my, my great honor and privilege, privilege today to be taking on kind of a different capacity. Uh, uh, Mike Nolan, our lead pastor, is actually out on study leave for the whole month. So you guys know what they say while the cat's out, what the mice will play. <laughs> and he's graciously given several of his pastors a chance to work on our teaching and preaching skills. So I humbly apologize to you all, my guinea pigs, this morning. Uh, But so grateful to be here with you. We are continuing in week five of our sermon series, Songs of Summer. And what we've been doing is each week, guys, we take a psalm and we unpack it. We look at the theology behind it or the story behind uh, that it was written. And today we'll be diving into one of my favorites, Psalm 100. Um, But before we begin, I'd like to ask you a question. What is maybe the best or the most memorable worship experience you've ever had? Now just think, because this might take you a minute maybe to go back to early. Can you think of a particular time or a moment that you experienced worship in any setting that stood out to you? And what made it joyful or what what made it memorable for you? Many of you might think of an experience that we've had right here in this room or one in the uh, the former room. Um, It could be, though, that maybe that was the Sunday that you accepted Christ. Um, for others of you, if you're like me, it wasn't in a church building at all. It might have been on the be- at the beach watching a sunset, or you could have been hiking up a small mountain um, at the park with your kids, maybe even just driving your car to work in the morning. Those are some of the most meaningful uh, worship experiences I know for me personally. Um, but just now that you guys kind of have that in your head, I want to ask you another question, something else to consider. What brings you ultimate joy? Now, I didn't say happiness, did I? I said, what brings you ultimate joy? Now, happiness, guys, and joy are two very different things. Joy is much more consistent, and it's cultured internally, whereas happiness is more external. It's often based on people, places, things, feelings that we've received. So again, I want to ask you, what brings you ultimate joy? Now, being a worship guy... Something very near and dear to my heart is congregational participation. So I'm going to ask you guys to participate this morning. Is that okay? For some of us that are sleeping in the back, it's all good. Yeah, I'm already getting some no, no, David. (laughs) So I'd like to start by having us read Psalm 100 aloud. I'm going to invite you all to stand right now out of respect for God's word. So we're going to read this psalm nice and loud together. We have the words up there. Let's read it. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you so much. Now, outside of Psalm 23, Psalm 100 is probably the most well known and beloved psalm, and it opens with the title, A Psalm of Thanksgiving. In fact, it's the only psalm with that title. The Hebrew word for Thanksgiving literally means confession. 
at least in this case referring to confessing God's character and his works. Now we're going to kind of exegete this passage, take it apart a little bit, so I want to leave the, the scripture on the screen there. There are several possible approaches to outlining this psalm. Now you guys can see the five verses have been separated a little bit. So some would say that there are two verses, the first two of exhortation. That's just a fancy word um, to say a strong encouragement. So the first, some would say the first two would be exhortation followed by verse 3, which is an explanation. And then the pattern would repeat with verse 4 as exhortation and verse 5 as an explanation. Now John Piper, who's one of my favorite authors and pastors, he actually labels verses 1, 2, and 4 as exaltation. And then three and five as education. Another way of seeing it is to look at verses one, two, and four as imperatives that call for joyful acts and feelings, being joyful, serving, gladness, and singing praise. And then verses two and four as truths to be known. Know that the Lord is God, for he is good, and so on. Now, personally, I identify with John Piper's wording a bit better, but however you choose to, to label it, you'll see there are seven clear commands or acts of worship in this passage. Seven ways that as we, do, as we do life and learn more about our Heavenly Father that yield these joyful feelings and in turn yield joyful actions. But before we jump into those seven acts, let's look at the reason for them. And they are two very, very simple truths. First truth, that God is God. It is He who made us, the psalmist says, not we ourselves. Now, amazingly, many of us, we think, or I say we, we, we try to live our lives as if we've created ourselves. Sure, those individuals, they, you know, they may give God some credit, but ultimately, they do what they want, when they want, how they want. I don't know, does this strike a chord with any of you? My family, um, we're big dog fans. Now, you guys might not know this. When we moved out here to California from Orlando, Florida, it was a slightly different. <laughs> Not just about 3,000 miles difference, but, uh, but we're huge dog people. We, we made the incredible, incredibly difficult decision to leave our golden retriever, Miles, back home. And guys, I tell you, that was one of the toughest decisions we've ever had to make. Um, I'll be honest, even though we found him a new home, there's not a day that goes by that we kind of regret that decision now. And it's really difficult. I'll come home from work to see my four-year-old daughter and my wife gooing over Instagram puppy pics. And it's, Daddy, 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 can we get a puppy? And I'm like, eh, I don't know how long I'm going to hold out, guys. I don't. I just, <laughs> um, but Miles, he, he really was the best dog. He was a goof. He's the very definition of goof. But he was loyal. He was the most loyal dog. And it sometimes makes me think that that's the kind of devotion our true creator is due. Complete and utter obedience to our master. And why? Because he literally formed us in his image. And if God was, was something less than the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God of the Bible, not, he would not have the ultimate power and authority to impose his goodness. Which is our second truth this morning from this psalm, that God is good. Now we hear that a lot in church, amen? We sing, he's a good, good father. But do, we, do we really believe that? Do we, do we grasp that love? Some of you... And I don't want to try to even um, think about trying to understand what some of you guys have gone through in your lives, but some of you are going through incredible trials right now and hardships and pain. I know most of us have in our life. And actually, if you haven't, 
<laughs> that would be crazy to know, but it would, um, good for you guys, just wait. <laughs> uh, but you might even be struggling right now. But do you believe that God is good and that he's using those pains and hardships to work together for your good? You guys know Romans 8, 28. What does he say? He causes all things to work together to the good of those, for those who love him. Guys, but he is, here's the thing, he is that standard. He sets the bar for all things goodness. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So why do we try? <laughs> now, perhaps the biggest problem man has is his ability to rationalize that we are good enough. Let's wake up and smell the coffee, guys. That ain't happening, amen? <laughs> Compared to God, we are nothing. We are rotten. We are sinful to the core. I hate to bust your bubble. It's true. Um, in Romans 3, Paul clearly paints this. It's an almost pathetic picture of mankind saying, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I mean, wow, guys. Can you almost hear the egos deflating in the room? It's <laughs> but thankfully, we know, we know the end of the story. We know what happens next. Even though we're all sinners who deserve an eternal death and separation from God, Christ did what? He died for us. He sent his son in the, in the goodness and the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why God is a good God and why we should be eternally grateful that he is and why during our hardships and loss that we must submit and to affirm his goodness by faith. Satan knows that if he can get you to doubt God, and his goodness, you won't trust him. And if you won't trust him, you won't obey him. I mean, why obey a mean God who's trying to make us miserable? Now, some of you maybe grew up with a mean father. Thankfully, myself and my wife, we were blessed in that category. We have amazing Christian, world's greatest dad kind of category. But that's not everybody in here. I don't want to... Um, Kind of fill in the blanks for that. But maybe you did. Maybe your dad claimed to be a Christian, but he was difficult to be around. You know, he maybe, maybe the type that he'd come home and he didn't want to be bothered by a bunch of hyperactive kids. <laughs> and you could hear his voice saying, do your homework. I have to tell you one more time. And as you grew up, you assumed that the Heavenly Father must be some sort of dad like that. Mean, grumpy, barking orders, and not wanting you to enjoy your life. And that is why, guys, that it's of utmost important that we derive our understanding of God the Father from the Bible. The psalmist actually mentions two facets of God's goodness. And they are, number one, that his loving kindness is everlasting. And two, that his faithfulness is to all generations. This is a great reminder, guys, that there's no end to God's faithfulness. That's because he is faithful, and we can trust him to keep his word. And the question now is what should be our response? Because he is both God and he is good, the psalmist lays out seven responses of joy, submission, and praise. They fall into one of those three categories. And we're going to start with number one. So we're going to look at our response as worshipers, our response as worshipers, as believers. Number one, the first one is to shout. What does it say? 
Shout joyfully. There we go. <laughs> Got a little ahead of myself. So right off the bat, guys, we are told to make a joyful noise. Now, historically, this refers to the spontaneous shouts of victory that a crowd would give their triumphant king when he comes back from battle. You guys have all seen the movies, and you see the, the victorious king. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Yeah, yeah. So I just think uh, of, of, of Aragorn coming back, and he, he comes back victorious into, into Helm's Deep, or whatever that might be. And the people would line the streets, and they would roar with applause and cheers. And that's how our joy in the Lord, it should overflow at times. Granted, we all go through highs and lows, guys, but we are to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep. I'm sure many of you know the shortest verse in the Bible. What is it? Right, Jesus wept, 11, John 11, 35. But in the Greek New Testament, it's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, which is the opposite, rejoice always. So you see there's, there's a balance. So if God has given you a victory in your life, whoop it up. If he's answered your prayer, shout for joy. Amen? Many of you are probably aware that yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. It's incredible. 50 years ago. It's making me feel old. Um, I wasn't around. <laughs> Sorry for you guys that were. Um, I actually did some research on this. It actually, it actually took 400,000 people to land the three astronauts on the moon. 400,000 engineers, programmers, analysts, seamstresses for the, 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 you know, um, the costumes, everything. The, uh, the suits, I should say, not the costumes. <laughs> space suits, David, space suits. Yeah. Their onboard computer had less processing power than our smartphones today. Now, that's pretty scary. And that's pretty scary. I actually, I'd like us to watch just a short clip here. But rather, as, as we watch this clip of the moon landing, rather than focus on the incredible feat that mankind accomplished, I'd like you to watch the response of the people and the world as they watch. And imagine the joyful noise made that 50 years ago. Let's watch together. July 16th, 1969. Americans crowd highways and beaches to witness the launch of Apollo 11 from the Kennedy Space Center. On board, astronauts Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. From the Oval Office, President Nixon watches along with 600 million people worldwide. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn the Biggest blue. TV audience ever at that time. On July 20th, the world sees the first men, Americans, walk on the moon. Incredible, huh? Now, now just think, 
how much more should we be shouting in response to our Savior, the one who actually gave his life for us, the reason that we have to worship? Maybe you're thinking, nah, that's, that's just not my personality. I'm a rather calm, reserved person. Not really my style, guys. Guys, Psalm 100, it's not saying shout for joy, all you extroverts and those with upbeat personalities. <laughs> if, if you're loyal to God, why not display your devotion to him? Exuberant joy is commanded for us all. Now, secondly, we see the command to serve gladly. Now, there are really two parts to this act. First, to serve the Lord, and second, do it with gladness. We serve God by serving others wholeheartedly. Just look at the model that Jesus shows us in Mark 10. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, people tend to to shy away from that word servant or even slave. But that's exactly what the Bible calls us to do, guys, to be slaves of God and to serve him with gladness. Gladly because he created us. Gladly because he has saved us. And gladly because of his constant goodness to us. So let me ask you, who are you serving? Just one of the ways we can serve the Lord is by singing. Our next uh, act is to sing emphatically. I use the word emphatically because it means with emphasis and without doubt. Christianity, guys, it's a singing faith. And honestly, singing is a Christian privilege. Now, I know, especially in today's day and age, we idolize those who can sing well. I mean, we're flooded with American Idol and The Voice. You guys name it, it's out there. And granted, not everyone is meant to be behind a microphone. As much as Chris Martinez and Jay would love to share their inner pop star. (laughs) But guys... When it comes to corporate worship, no one cares how good a singer you are. I'm just being honest with you. No one cares. Theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer says, no work of art is more important than the Christian's own life. And every Christian is called upon to be an artist in this sense. So what he's saying is that you may not have the gift of writing or singing or playing an instrument, But guys, each one of us has the gift of creativity in how you live out your own lives. The Christian's life, it's to be a thing of truth and a thing of beauty in spite of how the world views things. You know, I'll often stress with our worship teams here that God looks at the heart before the art. I said that again. God looks at the heart before the art. So don't worry about what the person next to you thinks of your voice. You can just, you know. The Bible says to make a joyful what? There you go. Singing, guys, it's a beautiful act of praise, and it offers participation in worship. It helps us express personal feelings, and it helps attune our hearts to the Lord, which leads us to our fourth act, to submit completely. Now, you won't exactly find the word submit in this verse, but it's written all over it. Just look at verse 3 again. He says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, why do you all think that the psalmist includes this verse in a psalm dealing with joy and thanksgiving? 
Well, just think about it. He's describing a relationship of submission to God. If you're grumbling and complaining about your circumstances, you're not subject to God's sovereign hand in your life. In fact, you're implying to God that you could do a better job of running your own life than him. See, church, it's not until you willingly submit to God as God that you can say, thank you, Lord, that you are good. Thank you that you work together for my good. Some of you might say, well, David, that sounds great. How do we do that? Well, by first, we recognize you're not God. And second, by completely submitting to him. We submit to God because he's our creator who formed us, our redeemer who saves us, and he's our great shepherd. Remember David's words in Psalm 23? He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And like him, we need to recognize that the Lord is our guide. He's our protector. He's our constant companion, always by our side. Now that's a good father, amen? Amen. Submission is directly related to thankfulness. And our fifth command is to enter gratefully. Verse 4 actually reads, to enter his gates with thanksgiving. Now, enter, guys, is the Hebrew word translated come. We come as we prepare our hearts for worship. David tells us in Psalm 63, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Just like when we sing, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise. And on and on it goes, right? That's where that comes from. All right, now I'm going to get real with you guys. Many of you, in the time that you woke up this morning, all right, how many of you, let me see your eyeballs up here, how many of you guys, you got up, you showered, you got dressed, you know, got the kids somewhat presentable, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I don't have time for breakfast, so I'm going to hit the Starbucks drive through Which, by the way, Starbucks on Nagley, that parking situation, side note, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Just saying. So you order the kids something and your venti hazelnut latte. Love you, baby. Um, just barely making it to church on time. You drop the kids off. You run across the courtyard just to get your seat by the second or third song in. Now, church, I'm not pointing fingers here. But answer me this. How can we honestly be prepared to enter God's most holy presence without distractions on our mind and joy in our hearts to worship our good, good Father? Have you really made time to do that? Have you made time to, to enter his gates, which refers to the tabernacle or the temple or the worship center in this case, wherever God's people come together and worship. We used to call it a sanctuary. Remember that one? But are you prepared? You know, I encourage you guys, and you might be like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I encourage you guys to take some time Saturday night and maybe even just pray over the services the next day. Pray that God's word would be revealed to not just your own heart, but the people's, that the corporate worship would be joyful, that it would be encouraging, that it would honor the Lord. Take five minutes to do that. Or maybe get up a little earlier on Sunday and get in God's word. That's all it takes, guys. I promise you, you could take this to the bank. I promise you, 
your outlook and, the, and the, the response, how you receive God's word, it will change. It will change your life. You will leave Sunday mornings feeling more refreshed than you've ever been, almost like an invigoration. And I don't, for, for me, guys, one of my favorite times with the Lord is my Sunday morning 10-minute drive from Mountain House. I drive out here, kind of drive slow, and it's a combination of warming my voice up and praying. So I'll let you guys use your imaginations. <laughs> but the entire time, I'm talking to God. It's just 10 minutes before I get in here and I have to deal with all the, the logistics of service stuff. And uh, Hey, and maybe, you know, you wake up Sunday morning and you're, you're feeling pretty down. In fact, the last place you want to be is church. Let me encourage you, come anyway. I promise you, you guys, you'll feel encouraged. Come anyway. One more thing I'd like to address about this verse is that we are to praise God audibly and publicly. I mean, how many times in the Bible do we see God's people praising him privately? Not too often. The pattern is to praise him out loud before the people so that the world will know the greatness of God. Don't hide your love for Jesus, guys. Remember, that's, that's our testimony. It should be out loud, powerful. All right, so hang in, with, in there with me, just a few more of these. Um, uh, our sixth act is give abundantly. Verse 4 tells us to give thanks. Psalm 92 tells us that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Philippians 4 tells us not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation give Thanks, all right? So is it safe to say, guys, that the Bible stresses thanksgiving to God? I'd say so. <laughs> and actually, it comes up roughly 102 times in the Old Testament and 71 in the New Testament. There's actually two Hebrew terms translated from our English word in the Old Testament, tada and yada, which both literally mean an extension of the hand. And as you research it more, we see that tada, it specifically refers to a sacrifice of praise or giving offerings. And yada focuses more on the praise element, to praise, to confess. I know those are kind of fun to say. <laughs> but for us today, Thanksgiving, guys, it's, it's what? It's an expression of gratitude. Now, we're taught as kids that we can pretty much say, you know, please and thank you. Those are like magic words that compel adults to give us anything, right? <laughs> I mean, you get that in, it's, you know, your goal. You can get that ice cream or that toy, whatever it was. But, you know, but as, we, as we grow up and we mature, we, thanks becomes almost instinct, doesn't it? I don't know about you guys, but I say it a lot, and I know I don't mean it, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest. I say it before I've actually had time to, to process it. Anybody like that in here? But guys, God's word tells us that Thanksgiving is an evidence of gratitude, and gratitude always honors the giver. I'll say that again. Thanksgiving is an evidence of gratitude, and gratitude always honors the giver. One thing I love about the Hebrew definitions of thanks are that they're totally tied to who God is. The more we learn about him, the more we should praise and glorify his name. Now, it's, it's not just a polite thanks for when something good happens. But rather, it's an outpouring of praise for who God is and what he's done in our lives. Now, Thanksgiving, it easily goes hand in hand with our last command. To bless humbly. We are to bless 
God's name, guys, to bestow favor upon. A blessing is giving God what he is due. And the very act itself should be humbling. The Hebrew word is like our former president's first name, Barak, except we pronounce it Barak, which means to kneel in adoration, to kneel in praise before Almighty God. And I want us to try something together. I'm not going to ask us to kneel. Don't worry about that. But would you just sing with me, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. Worship his holy name. You sing it. Sing my prayer before all my soul. I worship your holy name. That's beautiful. That's just a small, small example of what it means to bless the Lord. We say those words, Barak, we kneel humbly before him, giving all of ourselves. It's an act of surrender. You know, over my years as a worship pastor, I've encouraged people to, instead of asking, how was the worship? How was the worship this morning? Rather ask, how was your worship? It's a question, guys, of self-examination. A reminder that when we come into God's presence together, our sole focus should be on the king and blessing his holy name. After all, that's the reason we're gathered here in this beautiful new room, right? Amen? In conclusion, we respond in these ways because he is God and he is good. Human beings, guys, we're naturally responsive creatures. When we see a new baby, we ooh and ah. Or when a friend of ours gets a new car, we're like, that's, that's pretty cool. Nice ride, man. God has ultimately created us this way so that we would respond to his majesty and goodness with joy and gladness and serving and singing and thanksgiving and praise and blessing. Understanding and living out these seven responses helps us enjoy and delight in the Lord. And friends, trust me here. It will give you an ultimate joy that compares to no other. No person, no thing, no emotion can fill this void. And this is why God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God wants us to be glad in him, to be joyful in him, to sing, to bless, to love. He wants us to find him to be the most wonderful, enjoyable, satisfying reality in our lives. But to enjoy him, you got to know him first. Now, guys, maybe, maybe you know him, but you're like, you know, your joy is gone. You feel like, man, David, you know, if I have to be honest with you right now, my cup is empty. I, I'm just not feeling it. I'm, I've gone through this terrible tragedy or I lost my job. We had a miscarriage, you know, whatever it was. You guys fill in that blank. Maybe you've lost your joy. And that's okay, guys. That's okay. All you have to do is just talk to him. He's God. He's there. He wants to hear your heart. And you can ask him, God, fill my cup, not with happiness, but with joy. With a joy, guys, that's, that's unhindered, that will get you on your feet, praising him and singing 
Hallelujah. Amen? That is, what, that is what it's about, guys. It's my hope and prayer that some of these commands we've talked about today will change the way that you approach praising God. But this is why, guys, that we must first, we need to fix our faith on him in order to live a life of a proper, worshipful response. So as I said, I hope this will stick and that it'll, it'll affect how you, how you praise him. And not just in this room on Sundays, but that you would find excitement in worshiping him throughout your weeks. After all, shouldn't we be excited about worshiping God? Amen? Mm. The one who made us, who loves us, who gave his very son to die for us. That's what it's all about, guys. I just want to end with that last question again. Where do you find your ultimate joy? What is your ultimate joy? And again, I'm not talking happiness here, guys. Where is it? Sometimes, it, sometimes it, it's okay to, to self-reflect. And I encourage you guys, even if it takes you looking in the mirror in the morning and asking yourself that question, do it. Do it. Don't take God for granted. I pray, guys, don't miss out on the opportunities he gives you. Take advantage of what he gives us through grace and through love and find your ultimate joy in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.